0: We'll hear argument next in case 076984 Jimenez versus Quarterman. Mr. Goldstein.
1: Mr. Chief Justice and may it please the court. The Texas courts in this case reinstated the petitioner's direct appeal. The Texas Court of Appeals decided that appeal like it would decide any other case on direct review. He filed a petition for discretionary review in the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals which was denied and it was considered like any other appeal would be. The question presented by this case is whether the final judgment that indisputably results from those rulings triggers the one-year statute of limitations to file a Federal habeas corpus application. The statute that governs that question is reproduced in the blue brief at page one. Section 2244D1a prescribes a one-year period of limitation that shall apply to an application for a writ of habeas corpus by a person in custody pursuant to the judgment of a State Court. The limitation period shall run from the latest of, and it identifies four dates, the first of which is the date on which the judgment became final by the conclusion of direct review or the expiration of time for seeking such review.
2: And you don't think you need to go beyond A to resolve the
1: case? That's right, Justice Kennedy. Subsection A resolves this case by its plain terms. the Fifth Circuit decided this case, this issue, I'm sorry, in 2004 in a case called Salinas. And it thought that the factual scenario of the case was more logically covered by subsection D2 of the statute, which is on page 2 of the blue, the blue brief. And that provision is a tolling provision, and it says the time during which a properly filed application for state post-conviction or other collateral review with respect to the pertinent judgment or claim is pending shall not be counted towards any period of limitation under this subsection. And the Fifth Circuit's view in that Salinas case was that the better way of looking at this is that when the post-convi- state post-conviction court awarded relief of further direct review, all of that should be regarded as part of the post-conviction process. But four years after three years after the Fifth Circuit decided Salinas, this court decided Lawrence against Florida. And Lawrence disposes of the Fifth Circuit's logic in Salinas because Lawrence says that when the post-conviction court, here the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, issues its mandate, the application for post-conviction review is no longer pending. And so there isn't any reason to believe that Congress thought this factual scenario was covered by the tolling provisions of D-2. So does your
0: position depend upon the proposition that we are not free to consider the sort of second direct appeal as part of the collateral review
1: process? It doesn't depend on it, Mr. Chief Justice. Or you don't have to reach that question because, as I said in answer to Justice Kennedy's question, you can resolve this under D-1. But I was just trying to explain why the Fifth Circuit, which struggled with how to handle this scenario, was wrong in thinking it was governed by the tolling provision.
0: I guess it doesn't um, — I mean, does it really make a difference? I mean, if you view the direct appeal — that is the result of the collateral review process as part of the collateral review process, that time is tolled. And if you take your view and regard it as not final to trigger the process until you have another final decision, it, it, it kind of leads to the same result, doesn't it?
1: In many cases, but not all, including this one. The difference is that if you regard this as governed by tolling, that the set, what we'll call for purposes of the argument, just so we know, the second appeal. So the appeal that's granted by the post-conviction report, if you regard the, the proper way of reading 2244 to be, you have to regard that as being told, and the start date is the dismissal of the original appeal. If the State petitioner seeks post-conviction review more than one year after the dismissal of the first appeal, his Federal time is done. So
0: this, this — But does that really matter? I mean, the whole purpose of the Federal — statute of limitations, is to make sure these things get done within one year. And if he waits a year uh, before filing, then he's, he's out of time under EDPA.
1: It is, it is the case that Congress wanted it done within one year. The question presented by this case is one year of what? Right. So the, there are four different possible start dates. We know that the Fifth Circuit was wrong in the Salinas case when it said that Congress envisioned only a linear time period stopped only by tolling that would run from the first disposition of the case because 2244D, 1B, C and D are all provisions under which the time can expire and then be restarted. So what we think Congress wanted when it was picking start dates and the start date in D1A, the one that usually applies, is it wanted the State Courts on direct review to be done with the case. Finish it off. Then the state petitioner will have one year to start the state post-conviction process, and when that's done, go on to federal court. The reason we think Congress wanted to include the second appeal, the conclusion of the second appeal as the trigger, is that what's going on in the federal district court is you are trying to decide if the state court's disposition of the case is contrary to clearly established law as established by this court. And you won't know that. You won't even know what the Federal District Court is supposed to be reviewing until the conclusion of the Second Appeal. If if I could just illustrate that, in in the Joint Appendix at page 43 is the the State Court opinion in this case. The Texas Court of Appeals decided this case and resolved the petitioner's Federal Constitutional claims. And it only did that in the Second Appeal. And that's what Congress was concerned with the Federal District Court's reviewing. It's when this opinion is issued and then the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is their highest court in criminal cases, denies review, then it's logical for the time period to
3: start. Well, in the background of this case, Mr. Goldstein, is that, in fact, he didn't know the first time that his appeal had been dismissed. He didn't know that his lawyer had filed in an Anders' brief. But when he found that out, he waited some four and a half years. So why isn't the Texas right when it says, look at B and D? They, they would have fit his case. He could have used those to get a time uh, starting from the date that he found out. It wouldn't give him four and a half years, but why — you say that we all we have to consider is A. You said that in answer to Justice Kennedy. But why shouldn't we say that either B or D fits his case?
1: Okay, can I answer that question, Justice Ginsburg, in two parts? First, most directly, I want to explain our position with respect to B and D. And then I want to address the broad thematic concern that's raised by our case. Here's the troubling fact by our case, and that is the prospect that multiple State defendants will take more than a year. And I'd like to deal with that thematic point and explain why I don't think that's a concern. But to start directly with your point. Um, B and D, assuming that they apply for a moment, will only accomplish the following. And then I want to explain why I don't think they would apply. But even if they apply, what they would do is defer the start date of the one year. So on the facts of this case, one year after, uh, 11 months or so, after the Texas Court of Appeals erroneously dismissed the petitioner's first direct appeal without giving him the opportunity to file a pro se brief, he found out. On the state's view, the one year federal habeas corpus time would be deferred for that eleven months. And that's a very generous defendant favoring position for Texas to take in this court. Um, if it then starts, it doesn't, that reading does not accomplish what Congress wanted in 2244 because the state prisoner, though the time will have been deferred for a year, will still have to file for federal habeas corpus within a year. Notwithstanding the fact that he will get a second direct appeal, so he will be proceeding in both courts, his start date will have been deferred for 11 months, but he nonetheless, one year later, must appear in a federal district court in Texas, even though, on post-conviction review in the state courts, he's sent back to direct review.
0: Oh, but is that right? I mean, unless you count, as I gather your friends on the other side would do, the period of direct appeal as part of the collateral review process.
1: That's correct. And that's the argument about Lawrence. That argument is not sustainable in light of Lawrence. Just to to say that you have their argument exactly right, Mr. Chief Justice, the State's position is, as the Fifth Circuit held in the Salinas case, that when you get relief on post-conviction review and you're sent back to the State system, D-2 continues to apply, But that is not correct. The tolling stops. And that's because, as Lawrence held, the application, which is his post-conviction application in the state courts saying that I was deprived of my right to appeal, is no longer pending. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals has issued its mandate. So that's why this anomaly arises under the application of B or D that we don't think Congress could have intended. Now, Justice Ginsburg, there's a, a second part to my answer, and that is the specific points about whether B and D do, by their terms, apply. And here we are in the anomalous position that, again, Texas is arguing very defendant favoring readings of B and D, and I, representing a habeas petitioner, am in the unusual role of questioning whether these later start dates apply. But here are the, the lower courts, I think it's clear, would say that B and D don't apply. To take you to the textual, the text of the statute, again, B appears at the bottom of page one of the blue brief. And that has a start date of the date on which the impediment to filing an application created by State action in a violation of the Constitution or laws of the United States is removed if the applicant was prevented from filing by such State action. And the lower courts, as we explained in our brief, pretty uniformly conclude that the failure to give a defendant notice that his appeal has been dismissed is not an impediment created by State action to him filing a Federal habeas corpus application. And so Their attempt to grapple with our unusual facts has — would substantially broaden the application of subsection B.
0: What what about the State convicting, penalizing the defendant uh, despite the fact that his um, uh, constitutional right to competent counsel was — he
1: lost that right because of the failure of notification — it, it just it's not regarded as an impediment the the courts the lower courts take quite literally that there has to be an impediment the, the lower court decisions grappling with what an impediment is deal with a situation where a prison warden, for example, does not allow you access to the prison mails or somehow access to the legal resources you need in order to be able to file it. he won't deliver the federal habeas corpus application. D is even easier, I think, and that is the deadline starts from the date on which the factual predicate of the claim or claims presented could have been discovered through the exercise of due diligence. And the reason the State is not right about that provision and doesn't even really seriously argue it is that the claims referenced in D are the claims that are presented in the Federal habeas corpus application. Here, that's the claim that he had ineffective assistance of trial counsel and that the judge was biased against him. They are not the claim that he received uh, that he was denied the right to an appeal. And so it just, there, there is no textual basis to say that the later start date would apply under D.
0: But I had also is, is this just a dispute about the label because Texas chooses to call the proceeding that you get if you're successful on collateral review a second direct appeal, you would count finality one way, if they just switch the label and say that is the Collateral review, appeal process. Then you would agree with them.
1: No, sir. We think that you have to look at substance. As the the language that we use in a footnote in our reply brief addressing is is whether the per, the proceeding has the hallmarks of direct review. There are two states uh, that do have a procedure: South Carolina and Delaware in which you can raise your claim on post-conviction review that you are deprived of your right to a direct appeal. And the post-conviction court has the power to decide that on post-conviction review. We haven't found a case in which they actually exercise the power, but it appears that 48 of the 50 States deal with this problem the way Texas does. And that is, the relief that you get is that you are sent back into the direct review system. And then we think it's covered quite plainly by the text of D1. When that direct review is over, direct review concludes by its plain terms. Now, Justice Ginsburg, I had said that I wanted to come back and deal with the thematic problem that might concern the Court about our case, and that's the prospect that we will have defendants filing uh, State uh, post-conviction applications more than a year late, which could trouble the Court. As the Chief Justice indicated, Congress had a concern with moving this process along. Uh, In addition just to the plain text of the statute, which we think is controlling, there are, I think, three points. The first is there are state limitations principles that get these state prisoners to file their applications in a timely way. Now, in the great majority of states that's set by a number of years, in some states like Texas, it's applied by the principle of latches. And the important point and the reason we are here today is that Texas, for whatever reason, and the time limitations are intended to protect Texas here, decided not to assert that his state post conviction application was untimely. It didn't object to the granting of relief to the petitioner at all. The second reason, in addition to the state's own limitations period, is that the EDPA one year limitations period has real force. In the great majority of cases in which a state defendant is going to allege that he was deprived of his right to an appeal and raise that claim on state post-conviction review, he's going to lose that claim. The, the, The states don't give this stuff out like candy, and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals is not, you know, constantly reinstating defendant's appeals. And defendants know that. And unless you prevail on this claim, you are stuck with the one-year EDPA time that runs from the dismissal of your first appeal. And so you have every incentive in the world to get into state court quickly. And the third is just the general notion that defendants in non-capital cases don't have a real incentive to just delay before instituting uh, a state post-conviction review. And —
4: Suppose it is denied by by the state court when — and suppose it's denied by the State Court more, more than a year after the conclusion of the original proceeding. What, what is the consequence then?
1: I, can I just ask one point of clarification? If he instituted it more than a year after the dismissal of the first proceeding, he's out of time, because there is only one final judgment, and that is the ju- original dismissal. Suppose, suppose he institutes it, however, uh, within the year. Yes. Okay. He instituted — can I just say six months? So six months after the first dismissal, the petitioner appears in the Texas post-conviction courts. At that point, D2 starts to apply, because he has a properly filed application for state post-conviction relief. The state state post-conviction court takes three months to dispose of it, a year to dispose of it. It doesn't matter. When the state post-conviction court is done — And in your hypothetical, denies him relief, he has six months left to go to federal district court. D2 operates as it should while the case is sitting in the state post conviction court. And he
2: can't go to federal court uh, until that's resolved?
1: That is correct because he has not exhausted his claim. When when the claim is that you were denied your right to a direct appeal, the only place that you can raise that claim is state post conviction review. Federal habeas corpus requires you to exhaust your available State remedies. Your available State remedy for that is State post-conviction review. He may not appear in Federal District Court. The District Court, I think, would abuse its discretion in staying a plainly unexhausted claim. There wouldn't be good cause, as this Court has said, for If, if you
2: do prevail, it's, it's rather dramatic because your client was stunningly negligent. He does nothing for four and a half years, then strolls over to the State Court.
1: Well, uh, Justice Kennedy — the state, as I said, did not raise this argument in the place where we think it's appropriate and that no record was built on latches. It does, it does have that feel. I do think that the Court's opinion could make clear that this anomaly arises from the fact that despite the fact that the Texas courts have made quite clear that there are latches principles and limitations, that state here Would whatever.
3: May, may I ask if latches is something that, not, that, this, that the Texas court could bring up? On its own, or is it for the state to raise or not as it chooses?
1: It is for the state to raise, and we cite Texas authority for that in our reply brief, Justice Ginsburg. Is the
3: state statute
2: um, that that, uh, allows the uh, early conviction to be set aside and the appeal reinstated? Do we have that statute?
1: Uh, JUSTICE KENNEDY, THAT IS SECTION 11, ARTICLE 11.07. I I had it. Uh, do we have it in the — I do not believe you do. And the reason is that Article 11.07 is just the general Texas post-conviction regime. Uh, the procedure that's used for reinstating direct appeals is developed through case law, not by statute. Uh, Justice Scalia, there was a final point that I was about to make when I said, look, defendants in non-capital cases have every incentive to, if they want to get reliefs, to move their case along the court, might be concerned about capital cases, where there's the opposite concern, that defendants will try and keep their cases uh, alive, if you will. And Texas recognizes this point and has a deadline by statute that's quite short for instituting post-conviction relief in capital cases. They simply recognize that latches is the way to handle the prospect of delay in non-capital cases. We don't think there's any reason for this Court to override that determination, to second-guess its ju- the judgment of the Texas Courts, that the judgment is not final until the reinstated appeal concludes.
4: Well, so what happens,
5: just out of curiosity, uh, but the, the a, a, a prisoner uh, lawyer doesn't take the appeal. Time expires. Bong, the year begins to run. Within that year, he files federal habeas. Then he discovers that he had a right to a state appeal. So he goes, just like this uh, man, goes back. And sure enough, he gets his direct appeal. And three years later, they or a year later, they finish the direct appeal. Bong, he can file again. Is that his first habeas or his second habeas?
1: I have to ask one question, so I, because the, the answer is it depends. Yes. The, the question is, when he files for hetero, federal habeas corpus the first time in your hypothetical, I take it he doesn't raise the claim. No. He was raises he he was, he was, his substantive claim, yeah. like I, the judge was biased against me yeah, and yeah. the like. That is regarded as a 1st um, habeas application because the claim did not arise — I think that the judgment did not arise until later. I, I don't believe a case like that has arisen. I think the I proper- doubt that one
5: right. — I mean, one may never arise, but, but. —
1: the, the, the strange thing is that it is an exhausted set of claims, so it is a proper federal habeas corpus application, because he went through the, the — first one is system- proper, right. and on your abuse of it's the second one it, proper. It's so they're both proper, right. and it, there are two of them, Well, and uh, — it's proper in terms of it being exhausted. It would be dismissed, to be clear. So he, his appeal was denied, right? He, he doesn't file an appeal in the hypothetical. So when he shows up in Federal District Court, it's an exhausted it, — it, 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 he would be dismissed for failure to exhaust, in fact, because he didn't pursue, pursue his — No, ability. nobody
5: knows about this. But he, but he was he — No, but nobody it. knows that the State made a mistake in not giving him a
1: direct review. I, your hypothetical, Justice Breyer, I took it to be he Let's doesn't file an appeal. i oh, I'm sorry. It's
5: very never going okay. to come up. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I think, though, I can tell you this with some confidence. The, the way that this thing happened in Texas is the way that it happens in the States, and the way it happens in Federal courts as well under 2255. You file a post-conviction application, you say, I was denied entirely my right of appeal by something the Court did or something his, my lawyer did, and then you get to pursue your appeal. And, That's what Congress wanted the Federal District Court on habeas corpus to review. So, logically, the one year begins to run after that's done. Um, Well,
0: except you kind of elide the point that Congress and EDPO quite clearly wanted these Federal claims to be brought within a year. This seems to allow the State processes to trump uh, the one-year requirement.
1: Well, in many cases, Mr. Chief Justice, of course, the State appeals can take 20 years to go up and down and back and forth from State post-conviction review. We also have the rather commonplace case in which a defendant doesn't file a notice of appeal at all, as in Justice Breyer's hypothetical, but the Court of appeal says, you know, for good cause, we're going to let you file this appeal late. And it's quite clear in that scenario. So your appeal is reinstated there, too, because you were 20 days late, 30 days late on the filing deadline. It's quite clear and I think agreed in all of those situations that well, Congress did want you to move expeditiously. The question is move expeditiously from when? And it's from the state court's direct review finishing the conclusion of direct review. And we know that Congress recognized that that wouldn't always be one year from the end of the case the first time around from the structure of B, C, and D. And the fact that if if there were a tiebreaker at all, it is that the statute shall, the limitation period shall run from the latest of several dates. And so Congress quite clearly contemplated that there would be multiple possible start.
0: You said the unusual for the uh, Texas State to grant these. But presumably you could challenge the determination five, 10, 15 years later by the Texas Court not to grant you a direct appeal.
1: i I'm not sure I understand the, the hypothetical, Mr. Chief Justice. If, the, if you lose your post-conviction application for
0: it? Yeah. Or? Let's say this fellow in the, in the State Court says, well, you know what, we're not going to give you yes. another direct appeal. And he says, well, that decision was made in violation of my federal constitutional rights. What happens then with respect to Federal habeas?
1: Well, he is challenging his original – Federal habeas corpus is reviewing the judgment in his case. He has, since there was only one conclusion of direct review in his case – one year, measured from the first dismissal, told only during the period of pending post-conviction Well, but is is
0: he challenging the first conviction, or is he challenging the failure of the State Court to give him another direct appeal?
1: He is challenging the fact that he was denied a direct appeal, which is a challenge to the — to his actual conviction. That is a constitutional flaw in his conviction, and so it runs from the conclusion of direct review, not from anything related to post-conviction review.
0: No, and — That's, I gather, if he's granted the collateral — the direct — second direct appeal. What if the Court says, no, we don't agree that you were denied your right to a direct appeal. We think you had it, so you don't get another one. Yes. And he says that determination has been made in violation of the Federal Constitution.
1: The fact that the State post-conviction Court did not remedy a violation of his constitutional rights on direct review does not create a new constitutional violation. The constitutional violation in your hypothetical arises on direct review. Doesn't it
0: depend upon the allegation he wishes to make? Say he comes in in one of these proceedings four and a half years later and says, you should give me another direct review. I didn't have it. And the Court says, well, no, we're not going to give you one. And he says, well, you give it to all the white criminal defendants, and you're not giving it to me, so that violates uh, equal protection.
1: I don't think so. And if I could just explain, uh, give an analogy. So, say you could make the same allegation about ineffective assistance of trial counsel. You can always try and recharacterize your claim as the post-conviction court violated my constitutional rights by not vindicating a, 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 my original constitutional rights, my right to constitutionally effective counsel at trial. Or on appeal, and the, the federal habeas courts uniformly reject those efforts to recharacterize the constitutional violation arises in the original criminal case.
0: Yeah, I guess my hypothetical supposes a, a new constitutional yes. violation, and I'm just suggesting that the fact that Texas doesn't grant this relief freely. Doesn't mean that that's a sufficient answer with respect to the abuse of federal habeas.
1: I understand, Mr. Chief Justice. I, I think that body of cases is relatively narrow if it arises and it also isn't implicated here. If the court has no further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you,
0: counsel. Mr. Jordan?
6: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court? Congress's commitment to preventing unnecessary delays in the filing of federal habeas claims is reflected in Section 2244D1's strict one-year limitations period. And it did not intend that inmates who wait for years before seeking post-conviction review would obtain a new federal limitations start date when an out-of-time appeal is awarded.
2: Well, why why should that be, given the fact that the date is going to run from a, the the date at which the state of Texas is willing to take action? And if if Texas is willing to let the matter ride as long as it rode here, uh, why shouldn't the one-year statute apply? In other words, I guess what I'm saying is the. The, the decision about what is appropriate uh, that, in effect, would start this period running uh, is Texas's, and as long as Texas uh, is uh, is satisfied with it, why does EDPA have an independent concern?
6: Your Honor, the reason is that in D1A, Congress set a uniform federal rule for finality. And that finality date is either when uh, the period of direct review ends by the conclusion of direct review or the expiration of the time for seeking direct review. So when that happens, by statute, Congress has said that the D1A finality date is attached. Yeah, but that, in,
2: in effect, uh, I, I think that begs the question, because uh, if, if Texas says, okay, we're going we're, we're to recognize uh, a direct appeal uh, uh, starting or, or a director appeal right, exercisable now, uh, then D1A applies by its own terms uh, exactly uh, uh, at, the, at the conclusion of the process which Texas has, at this date, chosen to allow. Texas doesn't have any gripe. Uh, it decided it ought to act, and, and undoubtedly it should have. Uh, as, as, long as, the, as long as the state is protected, Why is there an independent interest in enforcing EDPA or
6: or enforcing the shortest possible rule uh, under EDPA? Justice Souter, there is an independent federal interest that the Court has recognized consistently in avoiding abusive and unnecessary delay in the filing of federal habeas claims. But
2: we're, we're concerned about state interests, aren't we?
6: Certainly, Justice Souter, and comedy and finality are important purposes of EDPA, but another recognized and important purpose of EDPA is to avoid, you know, abusive and unnecessary delays in the filing of Federal habeas claims, so that even if a State Court would allow stale claims years later to be heard, that doesn't mean that Federal Courts need to hear those claims 10, 15, or 20 years later. But there's a second point, Justice Souter, that that is a problem with interpreting D1A in the manner the petitioner suggests, which is that it will make it far more difficult for Federal courts to administer that statute, because if the Court interprets direct review to bring in Texas and all the 50 States' various remedies for ineffective assistance of counsel on appeal, then what that means is you're no longer going to have a uniform Federal rule for finality in any of these cases. What you're going to have is a patchwork of, of various dates. And the, and the reality is well, … you've got to, in, in a sense, you've got a patchwork now. I
2: mean, not, not every State rule for the commencement of a direct appeal in the normal course
6: uh, is, is identical. So um, we, we, we start with a patchwork. But the difference is stark, as Souter, because the, the dates that the States use for deadlines on initial direct appeal, the vast majority – are within a short time frame, 20 days to 90 days, sure. the vast majority, whereas these remedies for out-of-time appeals are genuinely varied, and they vary over time in the States. And if I could give you a couple of- But aren't
2: examples. they, and, and I'll, you know, I'll take the examples, but, I mean, aren't they varied because the, the circumstances of error which led to these late
6: appeals vary, too? Uh, and isn't that exactly the way it ought to be? Well, it's correct, Justice Souter, that some states, the the remedy varies with the type of ineffective assistance of the counsel. For example, the difference between not filing the notice of appeal or not filing a brief. But my point is that those remedies, the the petitioner's brief, opening brief, at pages 29 to 32, says this is going to be easy for federal courts to apply, because what they can do is look at these six different aspects of the nature of the remedy in each state, and they can determine from that whether when whether it should be a new start date or just tolling Why well, problem can
0: we leave that um I mean, you suggested it's a federal rule i'm not sure that's right why don't we just leave that up to the states i i'm not if i don't accept your friend's determination that this is a matter of substance rather than form states have it with <coughs> excuse me within their control here your state calls it another direct appeal so why don't we just take them at their word and if they don't want to get into the business of having federal review of a second direct appeal that they choose to allow, they can just call it something else, call it a, uh, you know, the collateral review uh, of a successful claim of ineffective assistance of counsel in filing, whatever. And then, you know, under Ed, um, uh, that wouldn't count as a new final judgment.
6: Well, it's it's true, Your Honor, that the the states can fashion whatever remedy they want. And in terms of the comedy and finality interests, it is going to be the responsibility of the states uh, if they want to change their law. But because in in these out-of-time appeals, and most of the states' remedies look somewhat like like Texas in the sense that they're coming through post-conviction review and they're they're awarding another, uh, if you will, chance for the inmate to assert his claims, there is not a reason for the Court to strain the interpretation of D-1A to protect the state's interest. Why,
5: why is it a strain? I mean, suppose that Texas decide to give every crim- criminal defendant convicted 1,000 years to appeal. Now, if they did, I guess they'd have one more year after that to go to federal habeas, right? That's true, Your Honor. Okay. Then what's the difference between that giving them 1,000 years, which I doubt they'll do, but Uh, And what they said here, they said, for purposes of the Texas rules, all time limits shall be calculated as if the sentence had been imposed on the date that the mandate of this Court issues. There they are. The Texas Supreme Court gave him all that time, as whatever it was, and said, that's the time you have. And how, how is that different from the legislature decides to give him a thousand years?
6: it's true your honor that the that the the texas court made a decision to give a remedy to this inmate that was meant to duplicate uh, the type of, of claims he could have raised on direct appeal but our position is that does not change the finality date under d1a because by statute congress has said that date attaches at the at the expiration of direct review and and the natural reading of that so, language. well
0: i'm sorry i was just going to stop you there it, it doesn't say that Starts to run at the expiration of direct review. It says when the date the judgment became final.
6: That's correct, Your Honor. And it says it became final by
0: by the conclusion of direct review.
6: Or the expiration of the time for seeking such review. And the importance there, Your Honor, is that it, it anticipates one of two events occurring. In other words, the natural reading is Congress understood that in some cases. There wasn't going to be a conclusion of direct review. There was going to be an expiration of time for seeking review. And at that point, finality would attach. Even
3: though, as in this case, it turn, turned out he found out within the year. But suppose he didn't find out for more than a year. that That is, he didn't find out that an Andrew's brief had been filed. He didn't find out about the dismissal. So because either his counsel or the state blundered, he's out in the cold and he can never present his direct appeal claim.
6: Uh, Not necessarily, Justice Ginsburg, and that's the reason why Congress already provided uh, exceptions in the statute in the form of subsections B through D that provide later start dates for extenuating circumstances beyond the MA's control,
3: Ms. Mr. Goldstein just explained to us why those two provisions, the B and D, would not work for this.
6: And, and Your Honor, I, I, unsurprisingly, I, I disagree. I disagree with that. And here's the reason why B, D1B applies. Uh, D-1B applies because, for example, in this case, you had uh, a a finding that there was uh, constitutionally ineffective assistance of counsel to the extent of abandoning the inmate on appeal. And this Court's precedent has has said that when there is, in in the trial or on direct appeal, when there is ineffective assistance of counsel that amounts to an abandonment, that winds up being imputed to the State because – it means that the state got or, or kept a conviction by the violation of the inmate's due process right.
0: Do you have a case to cite for that? Because I understood your friend to say the opposite, that that wouldn't count as impediments. So how do, do I resolve that dispute?
6: I do, Your Honor. I, you, you need look no further than the case that's cited in both briefs. It's Evans versus Lucy, and it is cited in the petitioner's brief at pages 27 and 37, and it's cited in our brief at pages 36 and 37. Uh, it is uh, also, in another case, not cited in the brief, but it's also noted in Coleman versus Thompson. In other words, the Court has consistently said that where there is a constructive denial of a counsel, counsel that amounts to no assistance at all and the State thereby obtains and retains a conviction, there that will be imputed to State. Now, the difficult part in, in getting D-1B, a later date under D-1B, is that you also need the causal connection. Because you can't just have the ineffective assistance of counsel, it also has to have caused the inmate not to be able to file uh, his, his uh, timely federal habeas. That happened in this case because the, the ineffective assistance of counsel resulted in the inmate having a lack of notice. The attorney did not serve the Anders brief on the inmate, and he gave the wrong address to the court. Uh, so the Court wound up sending the, the judgment to the wrong address, and the inmate didn't know. And that's why we say in those circumstances, D-1B is implicated. But it's worth noting that even if we measure the date from September of 1997, that we give him a new date under D-1B, then that's the date that he admits, he acknowledges, he knew his State appeal had failed. From that date, he waited four and a half years to seek any type of post-conviction review. And and the importance of that is that Congress intended to give a year, a strict one-year period. This inmate could have invoked D-1B, and he did not. And he waited four and a half years from the date he could have had.
3: And And Texas could have gone into the State Court and said, don't give him the direct review. He waited four and a half years after he, but the State didn't ask for that.
6: That's That's correct, Your Honor. The, the State did not uh, assert a latches defense, but I, I have — there's two points on that. One is, one is that um, the only case — there's one case — and it's cited in the brief ex parte cario, it's cited in the petitioner's brief — there's one case in the last 150 years of Texas jurisprudence where uh, latches has actually been asserted and, a, and, a, and an appeal has been uh, — I'm sorry, habeas has been denied based on that and uh, we're not talking about we're not asserting latches here we're talking about the running of of his federal limitations period under a federal statute and what we're saying is this inmate was clearly not diligent and this inmate could have had a later start date but even from that later start date he would uh, he would uh, the federal period would have expired i'd like to address quickly the d the d2 point because i think it's important Um, The reference was made that D2 doesn't work. In other words, D2 tolling won't work in this case because of the court's decision in Lawrence. And that's that's not true because the situation in Lawrence was different. In Lawrence, the court's decision said that inmate had exhausted all of his post-conviction review in the Florida courts. He had gone all the way through the top court. There was no – state court left for him to go to. And the question was, when he then came to this court with a cert petition, could that cert petition count as tolling time at review of the state post conviction review? The Court said no. That's not the case here. This is more like the Court's decision in Carey versus Saffel. And were in Carey, the Court said — the Court acknowledged that under California law, where inmates can, if they lose their habeas in a lower court, they can then file an original writ in a higher court. The court said that while the inmate is going through that process, the collateral review of the underlying judgment remained pending. It remained in continuance. And that's what's happening here. If you look at what happened in the Texas court, when the inmate filed his habeas petition, the habeas petition itself is not reviewing the pertinent judgment. That's the language of D2, reviewing the pertinent judgment that habeas petition asks for a second proceeding to review the pertinent judgment. It says, can you give me another proceeding, the out-of-time appeal, to review the pertinent judgment? And so when the inmate receives that, when he, if, he, if he gets the out-of-time appeal, then the next step, the out-of-time appeal, is where the judgment is reviewed. So the Court's rationale in Carey is applicable with even greater force here, because the State Courts have told him file another you know continue your proceeding so you can get review of the underlying judgment and it anticipates a two-step process so you might say that the out-of-time appeal is the remedy portion of the habeas proceeding in texas and that's why uh, the the d2 tolling does work and lawrence does not defeat that and and in this case that means that the inmate if he had acted timely he could have filed his state post-conviction petition if he had obtained an out-of-time appeal, he could, the tolling would have been gone on while throughout the out-of-time appeal, and then if he had lost that, he could have then gone to Federal court. And so- Well,
2: you're saying that two has a negative implication. I'm sorry? You're saying that two has a negative implication. In other words, the time shall not be counted uh, while it's pending. That means that- should be counted if it's not pending and you're not diligent?
6: That's That's — well, that's correct, Your Honor, in the sense that that if the the state — some collateral review in State Court has to be pending for tolling to be going on. And what we're saying is that for the out-of-time appeal process in Texas, it does remain pending. The reason it remains pending is that that first habeas petition is asking for, and if the inmate gets it, is receiving further collateral review of that judgment because
0: that's Did you say the first habeas petition to be the first state habeas petition.
6: That's correct, Your Honor. I'm sorry. And that first state habeas petition, if you, look, if you look in the record, you'll see the state habeas petition doesn't challenge anything about the underlying judgment. It doesn't say, "Give me relief on any particular claim." What it says is, "Give me an out of time appeal proceeding so that I can challenge the underlying judgment." And so, when the, when the inmate obtains that out of time appeal. To, to, uh, to get review of the underlying judgment, D2 tolling still applies.
0: And that, that's uh, — I'm sorry, what do you mean D2 tolling still applies? That the direct appeal time does not count against his one year?
6: That's correct. The, the out-of-time appeal time, Your Honor, won't count. So, so what would go on is that his, his, he would, if his habeas was granted and he was allowed the out-of-time appeal, he could pursue the out-of-time appeal. The, the tolling of the Federal limitations period under D-2 would remain during that entire time. If he then loses his out-of-time appeal and he comes out the other side of the process.
4: But that, that, that's assuming that he files the appeal with, within one year,
6: right? Uh, that's correct. I mean, he, he does. That's Correct, Your Honor.
4: What if he doesn't?
6: If he doesn't file his state habeas within one year, Your Honor, if he doesn't, game's over. Well, it it would be, Your Honor, unless he fell into one of the exceptions provided by Congress in D.C. or D. Um,
4: What if he doesn't find out about uh, about the fact that uh, notice proper notice wasn't given uh, to his counsel? So he doesn't find out about the gravamen for the appeal until after a year.
6: Your Honor, it, 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 two points in response. The first is thats is that I'm assuming in your hypothetical that it's an inmate who has attempted to be diligent, has attempted to contact right. the court. Right. And if, if he has attempted to contact the court and he still had not, had not found out, the circumstances, I mean, we've looked at a lot of these cases, and the, there's, there's just very few out there where an inmate who's being diligent is not going to be able to find out one way or the other. So it, it, it may be that if he wasn't able to, he might fall into D-1B. But if he didn't, uh, Your Honor, and it was an unusual, and it would have to be a very unusual circumstance, it might be that equitable tolling could apply. Uh, but th- this court is recognized in in, in, in Dodd versus United States in interpreting the similar provision to the counterpart to 2244 D1C, in the context of when the court recognizes a retroactively applicable.
4: Yeah. I don't think D- D1B does. It, uh, it requires an impediment to have been removed. There's no impediment being removed. He just didn't find out the facts.
6: Well, presumably, Your Honor, the reason that he didn't would have, if if he was being diligent. If he was, because he needs to be diligent, he can't just sit in his right? cell and say, I'm not going to do anything. If he's being diligent and if he is really attempting to find out what happened with his case, then then probably something uh, has happened, either, you know, through the state system or through the attorney. Uh, but but if, it, if it has not... Uh, you know, again, we've looked at a lot of these cases. We haven't seen uh, cases like that, uh, but it, it, I just made know. one up. I
4: mean, it's a
5: hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Yes. It works. Your system, I think, works in that instance. I, as I understand it, don't tell me I'm right if I'm wrong, please. But the, the as you understand it, he, uh, he finishes, uh, he, he doesn't get his appeal. You know, time passes, doesn't take it. Then, five years later, he learns for the first time And the first time he could have learned that his lawyer didn't tore up the notification. At that point, 1B comes into play. So the year begins to run. Then, in your idea, he has a a year to go to federal court. But wait, it's told while he goes to state court. So he goes to state court having just learned it. Now he's under two, and he files a habeas in state Now, the remedy of the state habeas is to reopen the direct appeal, but we should count that since it's a remedy of a habeas, as if it were a continuation of the habeas, and therefore it would fall within two. That's your argument. Exactly. And and it's correct. I do not think there's any case ever considered that, to my knowledge. (laughs) The only difficulty of it is that you have to take a sort of leap of faith of some kind in attaching well, everybody's calling a direct appeal as if it were actually part of the state habeas proceeding. That's, I think, the hardest part of your argument.
4: There's more of a problem than that. As the other side has said, 1B, which is the gimmick you're using to get out of it, doesn't speak of uh, not being able to find out in time. It speaks of the date on which the impediment to no, filing no. an application D. D. is removed.
0: It's not B. It's D. I yeah, will direct them to counsel.
4: Oh, you said D, not
0: B, D. Well, I thought, uh, Counsel, that your response to that was that when you're, you have a failure of counsel, that that is imputed to the State. So it is a removal of an impediment created by the State.
6: That's, that's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. That's it, 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 Under the Court's decisions in cases like Evans versus Lucy. if there has been a constructive denial of counsel, an abandonment of counsel uh, to the degree where they, there, there effectively was no appeal, then that can be imputed to state. The reasoning has been that it's because the state was able to get or keep a conviction without the inmate having due process. That would be impediment. The, the inmate would still have to have the fact that that impediment actually caused him to in this in this case is a good example even though this inmate uh, you know there was ineffective assistance of counsel if the court had the right address and the court had sent him the judgment then there would not have been the causal connection he wouldn't have been able to get a d1b date
4: the problem the problem with 1d is that the claim or claims presented that is referred to in d is not the denial of the appeal it's the claim or claims that he wants to bring in his Federal habeas. That's why 1D doesn't work. You have to go back to, to 1B. I'm, I'm talking to
6: you. <laughs>
4: well,
5: I think my uh, a, a point. Point.
6: That's, <laughs> yes. Well, you're exactly right, Justice Scalia. That D1D, in this case, because it is claim-specific, it only does apply to the ineffective assistance of counsel on appeal. We noted in our brief that it was implicated, but that because he got relief on that claim in the State Court, there was no reason for him to — so he, he wouldn't have — the, the D was implicated but didn't need to be asserted. We're saying that D-1B B. is is in play in this case because of the unique circumstances of this — of this So between
5: your response to the Chief Justice and uh, Justice Scalia,
6: I stand in light <laughs> uh, it's the interplay of these two of these two provisions because uh, both of them, in any particular case, could be in play. Uh, if the if, for example, this inmate had not gotten relief in the state court for his ineffective assistance of counsel on appeal, then D1D could have provided a later start date for that claim. It's D1V that applies to the other claims. And the, you know, the, the bottom-line notion for, for our position is that it cannot be uh, that Congress intended uh, in this, stat- this statute to be interpreted such that a non-diligent inmate who waits four and a half years after he knows his appeal has failed to seek any sort of post-conviction relief will obtain a new start date. Well, but that's you know, your but, fault. But
3: Texas, Texas could have. Right. Not only that, just don't some states — have a limitation period? When when he finds out that his appeal has been dismissed without notice to him, aren't there some state criminal justice systems that say, from the date that you had knowledge, you have x days to file?
6: Yes, Your Honor. I mean, there are a number of States that have basic, if we're talking about remedies for ineffective assistance of counsel on appeal, there are a number of States that have uh, deadlines, but there are at least 19 States that provide remedies for ineffective assistance of counsel on appeal with no statute of limitations. And in, and in those states, and in many cases, what that means is that the inmate, like this inmate, could come five years later, ten years later, and make those claims.
0: So do, do I understand correctly that, based on your answers and your friend's answers, there is no difference between the way you two, in substance, read these provisions? He relies on D1A. You rely on the combination of D2 and D1B and d Except in the situation where you have a non-diligent prisoner, and in that case, his his theory leads to a different result than yours. He excuses the non-diligence because the State chooses to label the second collateral proceeding as final. You do not excuse the non-diligence because in the absence of diligence, D-1B and D-1D don't apply.
6: That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. And I'd like to address a point that's, that's made in the reply brief. And about that it,
0: comes down, it does come down to his, where he began his argument, which is said that this is the usual case in which Texas is being overly generous to uh, uh, convicts because you choose to label it as direct appeal, and therefore that means someone that the states allow to have another direct appeal, even though they've been non-diligent, get the benefit of the, uh, uh, of a new finality date.
6: That's correct, Your Honor. And our position is that Texas, not Texas or any state can rewrite this federal statute and the finality date in this federal statute. But but I want to address quickly the point that's made in the reply brief, that the Court need not worry about this because there's no incentive for non-capital inmates uh, to to sit on their rights. And And I have two points I want to make on that. The first is uh, Congress has already made that decision. Uh, Obviously, Congress was concerned that even non-capital inmates could sit on their rights because they imposed this strict one-year limitation on non-capital inmates. But the second point is that, as a practical matter, this happens in many, many cases. These cases provide the example. This case, an inmate waited five years. The Frash versus Pegues case that is coming out of the Fourth Circuit on an out-of-time appeal, the inmate, the non-capital inmate, waited ten years. To to, to seek post-conviction review. And so these are cases that we think are representative of many cases that would come through the district courts. And that, in fact, non-capital inmates, whatever their incentives may be, do, as a practical matter, sometimes sit on their rights.
4: Convicted felons don't. Make intelligent decisions, you're saying.
6: That's correct, Justice yeah. Scalia. And the problem is, is that when, when, for whatever reason, they sit on their rights 10 or 15 years, our point is that that doesn't mean they can come back in and have Federal courts hearing stale claims that should have been brought if the inmate was being diligent years earlier and there 's uh, and, and, and this case is a case in point. this inmate has has provided no reason why no legitimate reason why he waited four and a half years. The only reason he provided was i 'm a pro se inmate and i, I don 't know what the law is and you can find his that at the joint appendix pages one hundred nine to one twelve. And those are directly rejected by the court in uh, the Johnson case, Johnson United States, the court said in that case.
4: Can I corrected on the underlying merits of the basic claim that his lawyer filed an Andrew's brief that's correct that's so probably not a very well, he's not got the greatest chance in the world of succeeding i wouldn 't suppose isn't that characteristic of this category of cases that really most of them are pretty, pretty frivolous.
6: Uh, your Honor, a lot of them are, a lot of them are, and in fact, there were two Anders briefs filed in this case to show how, uh, how weak his claims were. When he got the out-of-time appeal, he was appointed a new attorney, and she filed an Anders brief. So you had two attorneys in this case who said. Yeah, it
4: strikes me about the case. is see, we're all fighting about the limitations and whether it applies and so forth. And you probably could have disposed of the whole litigation a lot faster by just looking at the merits for about ten minutes.
6: I think that's exactly right, Justice Stevens. Uh, but uh, the, the procedural question me. This is all
4: a product of Congress is trying to save us all time.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I, I, uh, th- this case, uh, the underlying merits are there, — there basically are no merits to his underlying claims. It's a point that we, we fully briefed and that I, I, I won't address here unless there are uh, questions from the Court um, and unless there are further questions. Um
0: Thank you, Mr. Jordan. Mr. Gosi, you have four minutes.
1: Thank you, sir. A few short points. Justice Stevens, if later on you have the opportunity to look at footnote 15 on page 42 of the Blue Brief, we cite eight cases, and there are more where these out of time appeals really did find meritorious claims. And so I don't want the court to be left with the impression that this is all much ado about nothing. The rule of law will actually be quite significant two small corrections to things my friend inadvertently said or impressions he may have inadvertently left. He says there are 19 states that have no statute of limitations, but that omits the very many of those states that apply latches and the fact that the State of Texas here didn't assert the untimeliness of the state post-conviction proceeding is pretty much, I think, why we're ultimately here. He also said that there's only one state opinion finding latches, as if, I think, to create the impression that Texas courts don't take latches seriously. Most of these are disposed of without opinion. The more relevant point is that there aren't Texas state opinions rejecting claims of latches. What the Texas courts have made clear is that the Texas AG's office has to assert the defense of latches, as is true everywhere and is true in this Court's jurisprudence as well. The final two points I wanted to make are about D1B and D2, all of which I think honestly reduced to Justice Kennedy's point is that the relevant provision here is D1, whatever else is going on in the case. But Justice Scalia and the Chief Justice came back to the point about whether this is an impediment. And my friend kept answering, it's state action, and the court would say, but it is an impediment. And at page 20 of our reply brief, we must cite eight or ten cases, three of which notably are from Texas, they were litigated by the Texas Attorney General's Office, that make quite clear that the failure to give the notice of the opinion is not an impediment to filing post-conviction review. And the Court would be rewriting a lot of habeas corpus law to rule for the State of Texas here.
0: What, what about uh, — he cited most prominently the evitts case.
1: That shows its state action. But as the Court's question indicated, the question is, it, is it state action that's an impediment to filing a Federal habeas petition? And all of our cases answer that question. The final point is about D2, and my friend says that this isn't like Lawrence versus the Lawrence versus Florida, because here there's more proceedings. But the Court's holding was this, and it was unambiguous. When the post-conviction Court enters its its mandate, so that the time to seek search starts to run, that's when the post-conviction application is no longer pending. And when the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals decided the petitioner's claim and said he had an out-of-time appeal, It issued its mandate, and the mandate's in the joint appendix, and somebody — the State could have sought cert in that case, and the post-conviction application was no longer pending. And, Mr. Chief Justice, you're right. You can decide the case on the basis of label or substance, but it is unambiguous that this is not post-conviction review in what we've been calling the second appeal. Teague retroactivity, does not apply. All the constitutional rights that are announced in the meantime apply. You have a right to a counsel. The usual standards for post-conviction relief in terms of it having to show an extra layer of prejudice don't apply. This is just like any other appeal the Texas Courts of Appeals and the Courts of Criminal Appeal would decide, and that makes it a D1 case. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.